So um, there's this guy, Robert, and he follows this televangelist on TV all the time. And the TV evangelist is coming to his hometown, super excited, right? And he's like, woo, I'm, I'm getting those tickets. I'm going to go see him. So then here he is. He's in the service. He's, um, you know, they're doing uh, the ministering and everything. And Robert runs up to the front and he says, I want you guys to pray for me. So then he says, okay, um, what do you want prayer for? I want prayer for my, I want prayer for my hearing. That's what he says. I want prayer for my hearing. So then... After three minutes, about three minutes of some violent shaking and pushing and trying to knock Robert down, the preacher says, son, how is your hearing? And Robert says, I, I don't know yet. But it doesn't take place till next Tuesday in the courthouse. As we continue our series in discernment, this particular TV evangelist must have missed the mark somewhere and really didn't discern properly as he was ministering to this man. But we're going to continue today in our series of discernment. Last week we spoke about that the sermon is, under, is really knowing what's right and what's wrong. The sermoning is also, what, what did a, he said, the, the quote was something, that not, only know, not only knowing what's right, but what's almost right. What, knowing the difference between what's right and what's almost right is what we mentioned last week. What happens is this. We, we touched on it briefly last week. We mentioned there are some gray areas that are harder to understand what's right and what's wrong. And so today, we're, the whole message is focusing on the gray area, right? And today's uh, title is called Discerning in the Gray. Now, I was talking to a couple people, and I wanted to name the sermon Shades of Gray, but uh, it would have been a little scandalous <laughs> to, put that on the, to put that on the thing, to put that out there. But we are living... We are living in the gray many times. We are living in the gray many times. Gray matters. We all have to deal with them. And we all have to go that time in our life where there's a fine line between what is right and what is wrong. They seem gray to us, but did you know that great God doesn't see gray? They seem gray to us, like, oh, maybe, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that. But the thing is, it doesn't, it's not gray to God. It's white or black. Is it okay to listen to music that degrades women, that promotes violence, sex outside of marriage, drugs, alcohol? Well, you know, Pastor, the beat is hot. I've been there where a, a song comes out in the past, right? And it's like, yo, that song is so amazing. And it's really not the song that's amazing. It's the music that's amazing. But the words that went along with that song were horrible. Is it okay? Well, I don't believe in what the words are saying. 
I don't, that's not what I feel. I just like the music. So I think it's okay for me to listen to it. Right? Should I, should I smoke a cigar with my unbelieving father? Should I uh, play poker? People are like, what's well, nothing wrong with poker? Sometimes there's some things that come along with the poker nights. Ain't nothing wrong playing poker. But there's some things that come along with poker nights that perhaps we shouldn't be a part of. How tight is too tight? Can I have a beer or two or three or four with my friends when I go out to dinner? This is the gray land that we live in, right? Because we live in a society now that, you know, um, almost everything is being accepted, even within the boundaries of Christianity, or the world may want us to feel that it's being accepted. Listen, I can't tell you what movies to watch, and I won't. I won't tell you what music to listen to. Um, I can't give you a list of do's and don'ts. Um, I don't want someone to give me a list of do's and don'ts, right? So I could imagine you probably don't want one either. Um, But together, we can go to the Scripture Together, we can go into this book, and um, we can begin to cultivate discernment in the gray areas by what the Bible says. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter four, verse five, chapter five, verse fourteen. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish. We need to constantly be in the word of God. Church, constantly, constantly be in the word of God. Notice that this passage, it doesn't mention the gray area right? It's either good or evil. The word doesn't say there's an in-between for that. How can I tell the difference? How can I discern when things feel a little fuzzy? I mean, if it's fuzzy for me, does God see it as fuzzy as well? God doesn't see anything fuzzy or gray. Again, It's good or evil, and it's clear. If we're honest this morning with one another, with ourselves, let's be honest with ourselves, we all need to grow in discernment. We all need to grow in discernment. Um, But how can we really do this? Like, let's let. what exactly do I have to do? Okay, we can ask God for discernment. We talked about that last week. But is there anything I can do in the meantime? Like, I ask, and then... What? I ask, and then what? Do you know that throughout the years that I have been serving in ministry, um, I've had an opportunity to speak to individuals when they're going through stuff or talk to someone when they make certain decisions or when, uh, (laughs) when they're struggling with some gray matters in their lives. 
um, sometimes when I ask someone a question like, why, why, why did you do that? Like, why, why, which is why? What was the motive? Like, why did you decide to do, make that decision? And people have said, well, that's just my conviction. Have, has anybody heard that? That's just my conviction. Like, you know, I didn't see anything wrong with that. I wasn't convicted in that or, 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 or you know what, it, it, was just, it was just something that I felt. And then I said, well, how did, you, how did you come upon that conviction? Like, what made you, like, how did you get there? Like, how did you come upon that conviction in your life? And when I asked them how, <laughs> many times it has nothing to do with the scripture. Many times they're like, well, because one day I was talking to my friend and my friend is, does that, does, do those conversations sound familiar? That all of a sudden people land with certain convictions that have nothing to do with the word of God because of influence of those that may be around them, of influence of what they have seen or what they may have heard, but that is not based off of this. Therefore, that conviction that you suddenly decided was going to influence your decisions was not a godly conviction. It was not led by the Holy Spirit. It's not rooted in scripture. So what he does is God provides us principles in his word. And so I know that the teens, especially the teens, because I've seen their notebooks, um, some of them have notebooks to take notes. So I'll make it real simple. If you're taking notes, we're going to talk about five principles, five principles that will help us grow in our discernment. The first one we want to talk about is imitate God. We're going to imitate God. Let's turn to um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The word says, imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. (laughs) So when you're faced with something that seems gray, at that moment, what standard are you using to try to figure out which direction to go? Like when you're in a gray matter, a gray situation, what are, what are the standards are you using? The Bible tells me here that I'm supposed to imitate God. Um, that seems to be one of the highest, the highest standard. Because we know that there's nothing can, that can top God. We're called to imitate The standard that the word is telling us that we should have is a standard of imitating God. If we find ourselves in a gray area, what we need to do is react or answer in a way that we feel that perhaps God would. What was that? Remember uh, WWJD, what would Jesus do? Remember? And now we have a what would Dennis ask bracelet that's going around. But what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation? (laughs) I stubbed my toe. What would Jesus do? Would he yell out profanities? Or would he say, oh, myself. (laughs) Instead of, oh, Jesus, oh, myself. If he, if he was driving and someone cut him off in traffic, 
would he make any hand gestures that are, in, are in, inappropriate? Would he lower the window down and say things that perhaps could be offensive? I don't think he would. You know, that was something that was really, it was really big when I was a teenager. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? I think there was like a what would Jesus do movement that was around in that era. And um, believe it or not, I think I heard it so many times that there were moments that I actually thought about, what would Jesus do right now? I, you know, it was just ringing in my ears, and I was like, what would he do? The scripture calls us beloved children. Did you know that? The scripture says that we are beloved children. Think about this, how we were once an enemy of God, and when we accept him and receive him, we became his beloved children. Because of what Christ has done for you, because of what Christ did for us, our relationship with the Father is restored. Because what Christ did on the cross for you and for me, our relationship with the Father is restored. That's why we, are, we, we also continue to, um, in obedience, observe communion, which we will be doing today before we leave, as a reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross. When we, were, when we got saved, for those that accepted Christ, when we came to Christ, he comes in and he transforms everything. That's why just a second ago, not too long ago, some of us are being lied to because what happens is we made a decision. Some of you made a decision and said, I'm going to serve the Lord. Some of you made a decision and says, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Some of you guys made a decision and says, I'm not going to be the same person anymore. I'm a new creation. But then something happened, someone, something, some situation, and the enemy came in and began to lie to you. It's like, no, you ain't different. You never really meant that. You, you, you're not really different. And begins to plant seeds of doubt in your mind. And the sad thing is many people believe it, and they allow it to sprout up. And then what they do is they make decisions from that point that make them draw further from God as opposed to draw near. Do's and don'ts. If I give you guys a, do, a list of do's and don'ts, some of you guys may put it on the fridge and be like, okay, do not say this word. Okay, boom. You may go half a day. You may do, do not, do not do this. Okay, I won't do that. And then maybe a day or two goes by. But when it's just a list of do's and don'ts, it lasts for a little while. But what, 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 what will last forever is the love of Christ. It's forever, right? And, and, and not only does it last forever, it's more powerful than a list of do's and don'ts. And when we truly understand the love of Christ and what it means and how it has transformed and how it has set free and how it has healed, when you understand the power of Christ and in all its glory, you don't need the list of do's and don'ts because it comes out of here. 
as a, as a result of gratefulness and thankfulness for what he has done for us. But when the sermon gets, it, the sermon gets hard, right? The sermon gets hard when we get tired of the constant practice that it takes. You know what, const, you know what constant practice? I said the sermon starts to get hard when we get tired of the constant practice that it takes. You know what constant practice? We just talked about the, the, the food, right? We talked about being in this word constantly, 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 constantly. Oh, I don't feel like reading today. I don't feel like doing this today. I don't feel like, okay. What happens is when you get tired of the practice, what happens is the sermon begins to get harder again. Why do I know, why do I know what to choose? Why am I making decisions like this? You ever ask yourself that question, like, days later? Why did I make that decision? Why, why, did, I, why, did, I, why did I say that? Why did I respond that way? You know, sometimes, sometimes we get caught off guard. Sometimes we, we make certain decisions, but, like, we need to constantly be in this book. Kids imitate. The Bible says that we're his beloved children. He wants us to imitate the father. How many parents here have children that like to imitate them? It's funny when they imitate stuff at home, right? You know, when they walk around in, in mom's shoes, making a, a mess and a noise all over the, all over the floor. When, um, <laughs> when she tries to imitate and be like my, like my nurse and take care of me if I get a little scratch, and she tries to be the one to put a Band-Aid on it. Uh, when, they, when they imitate what they see and what they hear, I mean, I think... I think we've been caught off guard sometimes what, what, she, what she's end up hearing, right? And how she imitates us. And we're like, did you tell her that? No, I didn't tell her that. Did you tell her that? But you know, you know what, what melts my heart is when I see her imitating us when it comes to prayer. When I see her imitating us when it comes to reading the word of God. When I see her imitating us when... Um, there were times that we've brought her to prayer before prayer started, and I remember her, I remember, and I even took a picture from my own memories, but Camille was praying, and I was kind of like getting things ready for prayer that night, and I looked back, and I saw Abigail praying alongside her, like on her own, imitating and praying. Parents, our children, our teens, we're gonna, are going to imitate. They're going to imitate. Number one, um, Sundays, that's why I say, I, say some, I, I tell families this. Parents, if Sundays are not a priority to you, they will not be to your children. Period. And then, yes, 15 years later, you're crying about how they want nothing to do with God and how the world is swallowing them up. But yet you did not show them that this was a priority. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. The way we speak in front of our children, our teens, the way we speak in front of other people, the way we act, the way we react, our children imitate us. They imitate us. Let me ask a question. Is, is it obvious your imitation of the father? 
Think about your life. Is my life an obvious imitation of the Father's? Is it obvious when I'm faced with small decisions? Is it obvious when I'm faced with some bigger decisions? Is it obvious at all? Is it obvious in my speech? Is it obvious in my humor? Is it obvious in, in, the, in, in my thoughts, in the things that I choose for entertainment? Is it obvious in my choices of, in, my, in life that I am imitating the Father? Think about some of the decisions that you guys have made. Think about the things that you've been listening to. Think about some of the places that you guys have went to. Is it obvious that those are things that are imitations of the Father? Would, would, would God himself want to be there? Would, would God choose that? Would God want to listen to that? Would God want to watch that? Hmm. Who do you resemble? Or who do you resemble most? We are living in a sinful and fallen world. And there is a clear battle between good and evil. Church, who do you resemble? Who do you resemble most? You know how it is. You guys weren't, you guys, we all were, we all were in school at some point. And the guys that always hung out together kind of began to look alike somehow. The girls that always hung together, they, always, they all kind of ended up looking alike after a while. You know, the hairstyles became very similar. The colors, the way they wore their jewelry, the way they had their makeup. After a while, if you are with certain girls all the time, you're going to kind of reflect one another. Same thing with guys, the style of sneakers, the style of clothes. Back then, it was a baggie was in, you know? These were too tight for back then. And so you would never see a group of guys that always hung out together where four guys, let's say four guys that always hung out together, you would never see three wearing baggy clothes and one wearing tight because it would not reflect that, that group. Who we spend the most time with, who we share the most interest with, where we spend uh, a lot of our, what we invest ourselves into is going to determine whom you look like the most. Are we looking like the world, church? Or are we looking like Christ? What are you looking like? The second, second principle I want to I wanna touch on is distrust your heart. Distrust your heart. The biggest challenge, right? <laughs> the biggest challenge that we face, um, it doesn't really come. There's a big challenge that comes from community in the culture of the community in the world and where we live in. But the biggest challenge that we face is right in here. It's your own heart. It's your own heart. Look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 to 10. It says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. Say secret motives. I give all people their due reward 
according to what their actions deserve. I get. Can I read that one more time? It says, <clears throat> I give all people their, who's I? Who's I? Okay, thank you, the Lord God. Okay. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Well, the Bible's clear telling us that uh, the one thing that we definitely need to distrust is our own hearts. We cannot trust our hearts at all. Um, If you want to cultivate discernment in the matters of gray areas, the, uh, the, the thing that we need to make sure we don't do is trust your heart. And the funny thing is that we live in a world where what do we hear? Follow your Listen, the Bible does not tell you to follow your heart. Y'all know that, right? The Bible does not say follow your heart. So it only makes sense that if the Bible's telling us not to follow our heart, that Satan over here comes and says, follow your heart. (laughs) How do you feel, Jessica? Does it make you feel good? Follow that. (laughs) Justin, just do what your heart tells you. (laughs) Did it make you feel good and warm inside? Joanna? Chase it. We hear that all the time. Our young people are being indoctrinated with that in their schools. Now, guess what? Yes, they can accomplish anything. Anything is possible. The sky is the limit of what our young people are capable of. But to follow your heart is a lie of the enemy. It's a lie of the devil. Because our hearts are deceitful. Follow your heart. Here's what the Bible says in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, 26. It says this. It says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. The enemy of the sermont. One of the sermon's enemy is trusting in your own heart. Listen, there are times where it just feels so right. And it couldn't be any wronger. I know, I said it on purpose. Our heart is deceitful because it is desperately sick with sin. Do we understand that? Our heart is deceitful because it's infected with sin. For the Christian, for those that have given their lives to Christ, right, the power of sin has been broken. 
and guilt of, and the guilt of sin atoned for. But its influence still remains and God calls us to wage war against it. Do you understand? We are Christians, right? We are, we, if you accepted Christ and, and you've given your life to Christ, you know, the, the, the power of sin over your life has been broken. You've been, you know, it's been atoned for. The Bible calls us saints. But yet, sin's influence still remains. And even as saints, we can fall victim to sin. And that's why the word says to wage war against it. It is. Sin is deceptive. Deceptive. And it brings confusion. Oh, confusion. It brings confusion to where God wants us to have clarity. I touched on this. I don't want to just touch on one thing, but this seems to just be the issue that a lot of, um, especially, again, we got all our teens here today, especially all our young people they, they struggle with, but there's a confusion. There's a confusion now because, you know, like, well, now they're saying that I can, I can just say what I, what I identify with, even though I may not be that. So I know God made me a man because I was born a man with man parts. But you know what? I want to identify as a woman because that's what I feel like I can do now. And the world is pushing this agenda and it's bringing confusion. It's bringing confusion. And we need to pray that, you know, that, that, that God continues to give them clarity that they are wonderfully and beautifully made, the way the scripture says. The way you guys are is exactly how God made you. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes. He made you who he wanted you to be because he gave you purpose. We need to be suspicious with our heart. You need, you need to be like, you know, you need to keep checking it like, wait a minute. Wait, what? You feel how? Like, you need to live a life being suspicious. You know, some of y'all are suspicious about a lot of things anyway. <laughs> some of y'all are like some, some super, uh, what, what do you call it? Um, uh, when you, when you, theor, uh, when you uh, theories, conspiracy theorists, right? I'm not against conspiracy theories. I'm not. But some of you guys are like really into it, right? And so there's a lot of suspicion, right? We need, what we need to be is suspicious of our heart, right? And so here are some ways that our sinful heart can deceive us. And um, these are some from, from common mistakes. You focus on issues instead of motives. This is, this is what happens. We touched on this a little bit last week. You say, like, there's nothing wrong with, there's nothing wrong with going to this particular concert. There's nothing wrong with going to this particular party. Or there's nothing wrong with seeing this particular movie, right? But instead of the issue, what's the heart motive behind it? Think about that. There's nothing wrong with being here. What's the heart? Why do you really want to be there? 
Why do you really want to put yourself in that surrounding? Think about it. Some of y'all are like, well, maybe I could throw a couple back and, you know, get loose and this and that. It has been a while. Check the motives. Why do you really want to do that in the first place? Because sometimes when you look at just the issues, it don't seem so bad. Well, I mean, there's really nothing wrong with just going to this place. I'm just talking. I'm just going to be standing there. I'm not really going to be doing anything bad. Why do you really want to be there in the first place? What is my motive in doing this? Another, another, another deception of the heart is that we justify ourselves because of uh, good intentions or perceived maturity, right? Good intentions or perceived maturity. Let's say like, well, you know, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just meeting someone there because I want to minister to them. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to meet them where they're at. Um, sir, did you just go into that strip club? Oh, no, no, no. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't go to look at the women. I went in there to minister to the men that are there to remind them that this is a sin. I can handle it, pastor. I can handle it. It doesn't affect me. I just want them to see that they can relate to me, that, that I'm there with them. But you know what? I'm using some funny, like, obvious examples, but this really happens. It really happens. We think we're strong enough to handle some things. We, we have this perception of maturity, and we feel like, no, 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 uh, my, my, my walk with God is, is so intense, so strong, so powerful that I can, I can, I can enter into certain places just so I can per- be perceived as relatable and in your stepping down into certain places, oh, you become relatable, all right? Because we end up falling to sin. Another point is that you question God's standard by saying, well, I mean, God, God will forgive me. <laughs> this, 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 is, this, is, this is something, especially, I want to say... Um, I don't know. If I, I don't want to speak for Manny. I don't want to speak for Manny or for my wife, um, or any other PKs that might be in the. But PKs have this this thing. We we grew up in church, right? We hear it every Sunday, but we go in and we do our own thing, and we say we know we can ask for forgiveness, and God will forgive us. And we grow up. We go. Oh, and Lee, it's the obvious, the obvious PK in the room right now. We grow up and we're like, well, God can forgive us. We know God forgives. We know he's love. We just, because we, we grew up, we, we, we know this. It's deep down in here. But then we, we, like, we almost use it as a justification to just do what we want to do in the first place and then say, well, God will forgive us. God will forgive us. God will forgive us. Some people will say, you know, I'll ask for forgiveness later. God will forgive me. Or we say, did God really mean that like the way the devil did in the garden? Did God really say, did God really say you would die? So we look at the gray areas in our life. Like, well, does the Bible really say we can't do this? 
First of all, if you're, if you're having the conversation in the first place about does the Bible really say we can't do this, then you already know you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, listen, let me, let me help you here. If you have the conversation and, and say, should I, or does the Bible even say, then it's probably not a good idea to do it. Some people are more comfortable with confusion than clarity. You know why? Because if, they're, if it's not made clear, they can continue sinning because it's not made clear. You see, I'd rather be confused and still do what I want because I really don't know what's right and wrong. So as long as I don't really know if it's right or wrong, I'll just keep doing it. Don't tell me if it's right or wrong because if you tell me it's right or wrong, now I know it's right or wrong. Now if I do it, I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. Well, you know why? Because the heart is deceitful. The heart is deceitful. If you're tempted to feel a little condemned right now, Let me remind you of a simple truth. Yes, we have hearts that deceive us, right? We do. We also have a Savior who has saved us and a Spirit who will lead us in the matters in the gray areas of our life. The third point is think biblically. Think biblically. Um, We all fall short of God's standard. That's something that we know. We, We fall short. We struggle with our sinful hearts, but God has given us a remedy. And we take a look at Mark 2, verse 17, and it says, Jesus heard it. He said to them, those who are well have no need of physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These are the words of Jesus Christ. The physician has come to save us of our wickedness and sinfulness. And in doing so has given us a desire, right, a desire um, to please him. He's given us principles in his word. He's, um, he's, he's, He's given us the Holy Spirit, counsel of pastors, godly friends, so that it can help us all cultivate a greater discernment, help us continue to distinguish between good and evil and make decisions that we should be making instead. He's given us everything we need. There's, listen, look around. He's given us his word. He's given us leadership. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us the tools that we need. Everything we need. If decisions about gray matters are still an issue for you, there could be a problem, and the problem could be that you're just not familiar enough with the Word of God. You're, you know, maybe, maybe, it's not, maybe it's just that you, maybe you want to. Maybe you want to discern better. Maybe you want to make some better choices, but you're, maybe you're just not as familiar with the Word of God as you need to be. 2 Timothy 3 16 to 17 says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses us to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The Bible, the Bible will tell us what is right and what is wrong. 
It's simple. It's simple. Sometimes we, you know, the Bible, we just, we just want to identify the obvious things, right? The obvious things, you know? The part of the words that scream out, you know, um, you know don't be sexually immoral or um, don't be a liar, don't be a thief, don't be a murderer. Like these are the obvious things that the Bible shouts out, right? But then the little things. How about the little things? I was going to go through some examples, right? But I already, I could, I was once called, um, and not too long ago, man, like four years ago, I remember a young man, he was referring to me, and he was like, oh, yeah, I know, I know Pastor Vince. He's a little legalistic, though. He's a little legalistic. I said, legalistic? Like me? Like my dad yells at me every Sunday night because I wore jeans when I preached. Like, like me? Legalistic? And I, I, I talked to Camille about it. I talked to my wife about it. I'm like, yo, he called me legalistic. And I'm like, and I'm, like I'm really like, because, like, you know, to legal, legalism is something that I, I, I knew well growing up. You know, I knew well when, when man applies laws to religion, right, and imposes those laws to us when we want to be a Christian. Or you want to be a Christian, you have to wear this and you have to sound like this, and you have to act like this. And what happens is legalism was a list of rules that were given to me as a child, right? Right now, if we were a legalistic church, none of you guys who have short hair could have short hair because you can't cut your hair. And everybody would be in skirts and ties and suits and stuff like that. That's, that's a, a form of legalism. And, and so I, I was... I was racking my brain, like, why would someone even put me in the same category as that? Because that's one of the reasons why I kind of like was pushed away in my walk with God. A lot of legalism pushed me away from God. And when I came back to serving the Lord, and especially in ministry, I said, the last thing that I want to do is serve in ministry and push people away from God. But then it hit me. It's just not that I'm legalistic. It's just that I don't compromise. And because I'm not willing to compromise, and because I'm not willing to say that certain things are okay when they're not okay, that makes me legalistic, according to that young man. This is not legalism. It's about being holy. It's about being holy. It's about being set apart. Mm-hmm. That's right. Sometimes we hear all the, the, the obvious things that shout out from the word, right? But there are some less obvious things that he wants to stay in a whisper. There's the less obvious things that come through relationship. I learned some of this when I married Camille. So um, when I married Camille, there were some obvious things about Camille that, were, that, that I knew off the, off, the, off the gate. An obvious thing was I got to marry Camille and become a father. That was obvious right? The less obvious was uh, that I learned that she didn't like it when I tickled her. <laughs> she turns into like the Loch Ness Monster. Ah, don't tickle me. 
I learned that the hard way. Here I am like, oh, tickle, tickle. don't say come here. <laughs> Sorry. I learned that she doesn't like it when my cold feet touch her legs under the covers. I learned that also. <laughs> I, those are the things I know. I learned that she didn't like. I, I did learn later that she, did, she does like when I surprise her and take her out somewhere that was unplanned, spontaneously. I learned also um, that she really loves it when I put my phone away and make the evening just about us. Camille did not come with a manual. (laughs) I really wish she did. All husbands are like, Lord, give me a manual for my wife. I had to live with her. I had to talk with her. I had to spend time with her to then find out the things that I found out about her. I had to to be in relationship with her for a period of time before I realized the things that she did not like. I had to be with her in relationship for a while before I figured out some of the things that she did like. Are you guys understanding what I'm saying? We need to be in relationship with God for a while. It can't just be like read one day and then that's it. No, he wants a relationship because there are some obvious things that shout out by just reading really quick. There's some obvious do's and don'ts. But there are some things that we find out what does God like and what he doesn't like when we are in relationship with him. He desires relationship. Exactly. That's my point. In these gray matters, I think... I believe many times he wants to whisper and revealing his character and his plan to us. And many times we don't provide an opportunity for that. Ephesians 5.17 says this. It says, um, therefore do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. In the scripture, God shows us his will. It shows us his will. Um, And we know that his will is to redeem his people. When you're thinking about the gray areas in your life, you have to ask, does, God, does, does this fit into God's will? His word reveals his will for us. When we don't know what decision to make, you have to ask yourself, does this fit into God's will? Some of y'all are like, Pastor, this is just too much work. Well, it's not going to come easy. What your mom say when you're growing up? Anything that comes easy, what? What's the saying? Easy come, easy go. If it comes too easy, it's not worth it. Come on. Think about it. You got to put the work in. The more biblical our thinking becomes, the clearer things will be. The more we'll be able to practice godly discernment. You have to ground your thinking on God's word. And that was, I skipped saying you guys, but number three was biblical thinking. Now we're going to go into part, uh, principle number four, involve others. <laughs> ever notice, um, ever notice 
uh, a brilliant idea that was actually very, very bad? Anybody had a brilliant idea that turned out to be horrible? <laughs> no, no, not every decision. For those that watch The Office, Dwight always has a brilliant idea that in his brain is perfect. But once he like, says it out loud, everyone's like, oh, no, 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 Dwight, don't do that. That's why it's important to involve others. I'm going to give you an example, a real example, a historical example. Back in 1950, China had a problem. In the 1950s, China had a big problem, and um, it was affecting their agriculture. And so they had this bird called the sparrow, and the sparrows were eating um, and, um, a lot of the grain from you know, the fields and so forth. The scientists came together, and they realized that for every million sparrows that they kill, they might have an additional food for 60,000 people. That's how bad it was, it was getting, right? So um, there was this one individual, his name was Chairman Mao, and he had a brilliant idea. His brilliant idea was that the sparrows had to go. That was it. And he made his decision. I'm the chairman. I make this decision. Sparrows got to go. As soon as he said that, mission, um, mission activated, destroy sparrows. And guess what? There were like hunt parties all over the country going out, killing these things. They were shooting them out of the sky. They were destroying the nest. They were breaking the eggs. Um, little villages would go on sparrow hunts and um, mobilizing the whole population of the country with this focus on kill these birds. Well, history shows that they, uh, <laughs> they almost made them extinct. They killed so many, millions and millions of these things that they, that they almost made the bird extinct. But uh, they slowly began to realize that they may have made a mistake. <laughs> you see, sparrows, their diet, about, um, about 30% of their diet was grain. The 60% of the diet was locusts. So what ended up happening was with the, lo with the sparrows dead, the locust population skyrocketed. And what it did was it, 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 they destroyed, the locusts are, they destructive. They destroyed the fields. Agriculture was hit hard. The country fell into a famine that lasted three years. This is real. It's not made up. China fell, went into a famine for three years. It says that 30 million people died from malnourishment in those three years. That's an average of 10 million people a year. <laughs> Chairman had a great idea, sounded brilliant. If, you know, if he would have perhaps allowed some others to be part of the decision, someone would have like, uh, well, they do eat locusts too. If we kill all the sparrows, 
problem with us, sometimes in helping within our growth in discernment, we need to involve others in our lives. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1 to 2 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. A fool has no delight in understanding but expressing his own art. Church, are you, are you isolating yourself from God's community? If we're going to grow in discernment, you don't do that. We need one another. We need to involve other people in our lives, right? Um, are you involving people in your decisions? Even when you think the answer is like definitely yes, or you already think that you have the right answer. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Think about this. Are we asking people like, listen, I'm about to make this decision. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Hey, I'm about to buy this house. What do you think about it? Hey, I'm about, to, I'm about to sell. What do you think about this? Hey, I'm about to, are we having these conversations or are we too proudful? We talked about pride the other night. Are we too proudful that we feel that I have the answer already? I don't need to ask anyone for help or for guidance. Involving other people, involving others means making them a part of your life. It means living community with them. Church, this is why I'm so big on this community part. I know coming to church isn't what makes us go to heaven. Being here on a Sunday doesn't get us into heaven. But this is a part about, this is the part of community that you need. This is the part of community and after and before and, and during and just being with one another. Getting involved in each other's lives, being there for, for each other. Just, we need this. We need this. I mean, you don't have to have like a formal process. Well, every day at seven, I have to, I have to text Naya to make sure she's all right. Like it doesn't have to be like robotic. It doesn't have to. But they should be part of community. Church, we're living, we're living in times where everyone's telling us to just do you. They're telling us, do you, do, do what your heart says, do what you feel is right, do what you, I'm telling, everything is about isolating yourself because guess what? We make the dumbest decisions on our own. Think about the worst decision in your life and you probably made that decision on your own. <laughs> Listen, we need, think about the worst decision in your life. You probably, you probably did that one. Church, we need one another. We need to involve each other in our lives. Not be in people's business just to be nosy. Because, again, that's a motive issue, right? Like, are we in each other's lives to encourage, to motivate, to uplift, to help them grow in their walk with God? Or am I in Nini's life because, you know, well, she does cook good, so. <laughs> if I hang out with Nini, I know I eat good. What are the, what's the motive behind why you're building relationships? What's the motive behind why you're reaching out to someone? 
What's the motive? Our motives should be because we love them and we want to see them grow in their walk with God. We want to show them that they're not alone. We want, to, we want to let them know that they have a brother or a sister in Christ. A lot of times, some of the issues that we have, many times we isolate ourselves. And then we're home and we're like, I can't believe I'm going through this. This is too much for me. This and that. And guess what? You don't have to be home alone going through like that when you are part of a church family. Lastly, lastly, I want to say uh, we need to decide to worship. You need to make a decision to worship. Now, some of you guys are like, worship? Yeah, I know. We were just worshiping a second ago. Hear me out, right? After applying the principles of the sermon that we've talked about, the, 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 there's, still, there's still something that happens in the gray area, right? Um, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you, give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a, a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Say, worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So God's not just talking about worship of you raising your hand and, and shouting and dancing. I mean, that's not the only, that's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that, that it's, it's every aspect of who you are can be a form of worship. When you find yourselves in the gray areas of life, you have to be, uh, uh, how can I worship God right now through my decision? How can I worship him through, through how I think or how I act right now? And if you're asking yourself, is this worship to God, you should be able to be like, yes, this is, or no, this isn't. Listen, if we are making certain decisions that are wrong, many times it's because we want to make those decisions. We want to keep doing what's wrong. And we find ourselves struggling the way Paul did. Remember when he's like, I want to do what's right, but I can't do what's right. I find myself doing what's wrong. I, even though I know what's wrong, I can't stop doing what's wrong, and I want to do what's right. Remember that? When Paul writes that, it shows me that if Paul went through that, like, I, I'm, I shouldn't be ashamed that I go through that. I shouldn't be like, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be condemned because I'm going through something because, hey, Paul wrote that even he struggled like that. So if I'm struggling like that, it makes me human the way Paul was human. But there is a way out. There is deliverance through that. You don't have to be bound to something the rest of your life. You don't have to be stuck living a certain way when you know it's the wrong way. You don't have to be stuck living like that all your life. Paul, what's our motivation? Paul says, by the mercies of God, we, we present our bodies as sacrifices because Christ has bought and saved us. We say, Lord, in light of what you've done for me, because of what you've done for me, you've saved me. You've delivered me. I was on my way to hell, 
And because of you, I have eternal life. When Paul talks about what's your motive, what's your motivation, you know how some artists be like, I need, I need motivation. I need an inspiration to then draw this painting. I need to be inspired before I can do this. A songwriter would be like, I need to be inspired or motivated before I write a song. The word is telling you to live your life as an act of worship, the decisions that you make as an act of worship. And some people are like, well, what's my motivation to live an, a lifestyle of worship? The motivation is that he died for you. He died for you. While we were yet sinners, while we were a mess, while we were disobedient, while we were rebellious, while we were just stubborn and hard-headed and had to be our way all the time, he still died for you. I didn't deserve it. I still don't deserve it. I'll never deserve it. But he did it because he loved me. That's my inspiration. That's what motivates me. That's why I want to live my life as an act of worship. Worshiping him. That's why I want to live my life just to, to thank as, as, a, as a form of gratitude of what he's done for me. Church, can we stand to our feet? Every moment of your day is a moment to worship the living God. Do you know that? Every moment that you're breathing is a moment that you can worship him. And I'm not saying that you got to be singing all day long. That's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that. I'm not even saying that you have to have the uh, Air One or K-Love on 24-7. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the way you live your life is an act of worship. 24-7. Dedicating to worship, dedicating to worship God in every area of your life, it changes your responses. Like, if you're worshiping him through your lifestyle, it changes our responses. When we're living lifestyles of worship, all of a sudden you find yourself asking yourself, like, well, should I really be, should I really be doing this? Is this really appropriate? I mean, whose, whose eyes are these? Whose ears are these? If I've given my life and have surrendered everything that I am to the Lord, if I've given everything I am to God, then whose eyes are these? Whose ears are these? What am I watching? What am I listening to? What am I putting on my body? Whose body is this? Who does this body belong to? <laughs> money? We don't talk about money too much. I don't, I don't talk about money too much, but... Our checkbook reveals who we worship. Your bank account reveals who you worship. 
Who owns your money? Because the funny thing is, we don't really own it. Everything we have, God gave us. Think about how much money you have in the bank right now, in your head. (laughs) And every cent of that was given to you by God. Every cent. When we tithe, when we, offer, when we give offerings to the Lord, we're worshiping him through our giving and saying, this was never mine in the first place. I'm just grateful that you've given me what you've given me. Thank you for what you've given me. I just want to show my, my thanks to you and give it back. When we, when we live a lifestyle of worship, even when we're chasing our dreams, our careers, we ask ourselves, who truly owns my career? Who truly is in charge? Who truly opened and closed doors? Do I have to compromise to get where I need to be? Do I have to do things that I know are wrong just to make it to the top? Or if I honor God and trust him, will he open the close the doors that he needs to open and close? Church, decide to worship God by giving yourself to him as a living sacrifice. Prayer team, can you please join me? Church, there's a reason why we're talking about the sermon. There's a reason why this is important. Because we need to start making some godly decisions we need to start being influenced by the right and not the wrong god is waking us up he's reviving his church and in that comes the responsibility of making decisions and hearing from him there are many gray areas that we walk that we face with in life and as we Grow in our discernment by imitating God, by not trusting in our heart, by thinking biblically, which by the way means we have to be in his word, by involving others in our lives and straying away from people's opinions and feelings. Friends, family, do not leave here the same that you walked in. Don't miss out on the healing that God has for you this morning.